0: Dr. Amalia Gonyas Malka, welcome to Womanity, Woman in Unity, the show that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in their struggles for liberation, self emancipation, human rights, democracy, racism, socio economic class division, and gender based violence. Joining us on the line today is the High Commissioner of New Zealand to South Africa, Ms. Sarah Lee. Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you very much. It's lovely to be here and particularly um, great to be here during August. So, thank you for the invite.
0: Yes, we're very happy to have you on the air in Women's Month and to hear more about some of the activities that happen from a New Zealand perspective with regards to gender equality and diversity.
1: Yes, well, New Zealand um, has a great reputation and is very proud of it. Strongly in the international arena as well as back home in New Zealand, progress. Uh, women's rights, gender equality, and and all that goes with it. To begin with, High Commissioner,
0: you've served your country for more than 15 years and have held various positions in foreign affairs. Can you please tell us about some of the landmarks in your career?
1: Yes, of course. Well, I'm very um, happy to own that getting this job as High Commissioner to South Africa has been the biggest landmark for me, for sure. It is my first mission job, so it's a personal achievement and one that I still pinch myself to check if it's true. So it's a personal career achievement. It's also a fantastic opportunity for me to spend time in Africa and to bring my family here to this fabulous continent. And I'm proud that my government and my ministry have put its trust in me to lead New Zealand's relationship with South Africa. So uh, that is the biggest landmark I have, but... My other landmarks are I am a foreignist, affairs I love foreign policy and trade policy and development. work. I also love New Zealand and I love living there. So my job has not been about serving our country in many and various um, locations around the world. And it's been more about being a good public servant back at home. And so when I look back on my role at the ministry in New Zealand, That stand out for me are ones where I've played, albeit a small role, in big moments for New Zealand. And so some of those are the role that I have played along with my colleagues in the ministry in responding to the Kaikoura earthquake in 2016, for example, and also the Christchurch mosque shootings and being able to play a role and prevent that where New Zealand communities require us as public servants to be thorough and accurate, but also compassionate. Those are the ones that stand out for me. Of course, I've also had the opportunity to travel to many wonderful places and to meet and work with fantastic people. Foreign Affairs is not the only career that lets you do that. Of course, there are many ways that you can travel the world, but I have been able to do it while representing Aotearoa, New Zealand, which is my home and my people. And so that's really special and something different.
0: You speak with such passion and enthusiasm and love for your country. It's it's wonderful to hear.
1: It's an easy place to love New Zealand.
0: Hi, Commissioner, you've shared with us some of the landmarks in your career some of the the attributes that have brought joy to you and almost I I would say it's about feeding the soul and there's a there's a quote which I'm going to take out of context here but that when you're doing something you love it, it doesn't feel like it's work Increasingly we function in a globally connected society and although we've mentioned South Africa as being one of your core nations that that you look after as High Commissioner, your portfolio actually extends to 12 countries in the African continent. Could you expand on some of the more significant collaborations or projects that you're working on in other countries in Africa?
1: Absolutely, I'd be happy to. So yes, here the New Zealand High Commissioner here in Pretoria is responsible for our relationships with twelve African countries, and that's a real honour. Although it's a logistical challenge at these times during the COVID nineteen outbreak, and with all the border closures that have been put in place. So we're now trying to readjust and figure out how we meet our objectives in a different way. But Having said that, New Zealand's work with Africa, supported by our posts here in Pretoria, but also my colleagues who work in Egypt and Ethiopia, but crucially, from all over the world. And now is a time, I suppose, where I can give a wee shout out to our colleagues who work together in New York and in Geneva and the United Nations, in Geneva again on trade issues, and in London on the Commonwealth. So... And elsewhere, of course, as well. So I can't um, claim that we here in Pretoria are the only people who are focusing on this relationship. An interesting example that I could share with you is what we affectionately in New Zealand call the DRA, which is the Global Research Alliance. I like talking about it because it really sums up our approach to cooperation in Africa. So here in Africa, we want to be absolutely credible we want to bring quality and relevant expertise and knowledge to the area we are working. And we want to focus on partnership. So the GRA is an alliance. There are 62 countries in the alliance, and I think there are about 24 African countries that make up that alliance as well. And it's works to understand the impact of greenhouse gas emissions. So it's a climate change initiative. And one thing we are working on is to work with African countries to ensure that they can understand the impact of their own greenhouse gas emissions in agriculture. So it's it's particularly important because you can only fix something once you understand something. And so this is our way of trying to assist African policymakers to be able to develop realistic goals to approach climate change in the agriculture sector, we all know that agriculture, sub in Africa, is particularly vulnerable to climate change. You know, high dependence on on rain, temperatures, uh, the reduced predictability of of the climate in this area. So, the severity of droughts and floods and storms that is impacting on agriculture as an industry, but also on food security for people. So this is an example that I like. It's our expertise being brought into the region. It's a focus on partnership. And so our goal is to bring real credibility in the areas that we work with Africa on. So along with agriculture, some of those other areas are renewable energy and also governance.
0: All those initiatives are massive in in terms of the, the scope and the scale. And they are all global concerns. Uh, climate change, no one can get away from it. From an agricultural element, we have to look at where we've got opportunities of sustainable mechanisms to feed people. And everything ties in to the 17 sustainable development goals that um, are, are being orchestrated from the United Nations. Speaking towards some of the other projects that that you work on, do you have any specific programs that address women's development in Africa?
1: Yes, we do. And uh, those ones are dear to my heart. I have to say, the, we work across the globe to advance the rights of women and girls, of course. But gender equality and women's empowerment is one of our five focus areas for development cooperation in our region and also inclusion, which goes hand in hand, is a key principle that we work with. So we uh, play to our strengths again, and so again, I can give you a couple of examples in the agriculture sector. We know that women play a hugely important role in agriculture, and also in rural communities. We know this in New Zealand, we know this in Africa. And so some from our office, we include Women farmers, especially in New Zealand, of a livestock production development association in Tanzania, for example. Also, we seek to identify uh, opportunities to support women to work properly and in a more strategic way and in leadership roles in the dairy industry, for example, for our Zambia dairy transformation program. So, those are a couple of the niche kind of agricultural. Um, projects and how we see empowerment of women and the quest to get women in greater levels of of leadership in these areas. But we also work on projects across our region, and me and my team are particularly aware that encouraging women's participation in the labour force has a very important both trickle-down and trickle-up effects on development and on communities. So many of our smaller projects focus on that. They focus on trying to get women into trade or work in any particular way. We, for example, have a small project with supporting investment, encouraging women to participate in craft work. We have a project in Malawi that aims to empower girls who are victims of abuse in training particularly in the fashion area. And we have another one that's struck up as our support of the World Food Programme, Farm to Market Alliance in Rwanda. And that, again, focuses on women's participation in that industry. And we know uh, there is a lot of research that the more women can be part of a training programme that leads to good careers the more that not only are we increasing their well-being, also increasing the well-being of the families and the communities that surround them.
0: You know what I like about all of the programs that you've mentioned from an empowerment perspective is that it is about economic empowerment, that that is giving women financial freedom, which in turn is reducing their dependency on someone else. But the challenges that I have from a labor force perspective, is that women are not truly seeing their value contribution. There's often a lot of labor that gets done that is unpaid, that's free. And from a South African perspective, on average, women are underpaid by 23% versus their male counterparts working in lower ranking roles. And they tend to be overrepresented in the unskilled labor force. So given your experience with some of these projects that you've mentioned, from a practical perspective, how do you think women can negotiate their value more effectively?
1: I agree absolutely with all your comments. Um, Empowerment is about having freedom to make your own choices. And you can only make your own choices if you've got the comfort or the security of being able to earn an income. I guess from a unskilled labour force perspective, our projects seek to institutionalise and to normalise the idea of training and participation. They seek to normalise the idea that women should play leadership roles, not just support roles in all sorts of industries, but our focus often is in agriculture. And we know that the research backs us up here, is that once you see... Some women in in roles where they're playing a really key strategic role, you get other people who understand that they can do it too. And you get families supporting their girls to take the steps that they need to to be able to play those roles. So that's perhaps education, that's staying in school a bit longer, that's ensuring that alternative training options are available. So that's, I suppose, the perspective that we get from our project. From a negotiating your value more effectively perspective, this is something, of course, that we work with women in New Zealand to do as well. Leaders who are women in New Zealand are encouraging our female trainees and our, our girls in school to be bold, to be ambitious, and to understand that in order to... and to ensure that you are being valued, that you need to really work your network. You need to understand that being part of a community means that you are legitimately entitled to play a leadership role. You are entitled to work your network. So that's what I have focused on in my career as well. I notice that women who work with and around me struggle to negotiate their own value, even very, very well-educated women who, who know that they should try hard to make sure that they are being paid the right amount, paid the equitable amount. And the way that I have tried to encourage people that I work with to think about and to take up this challenge is to just ask questions. Ask your employer for pay data. Ask your union or your women's network to ask the questions if you're not comfortable to do so. Ask your male counterparts what they get told. Some of them might not answer the question, might dodge the question, but some will tell you and will be very, very happy to do so and will help you like to understand where the inequities fit. Those lessons are ones that I've learned in my own career but are ones that are transferable whether you're in a foreign affairs ministry, or in a, in a much smaller organisation, or in trade of any kind.
0: That's great advice. Listening to some of the words that you used describing women and intentions, from bold, being ambitious, to driving through with leadership, that we have a right to serve in our communities. We have a right to take leadership posts. And I think that in our current scenario and situation of of COVID-19, where we are all experiencing significant negative social and economic impacts, some countries are actually proving that they can cope better than others. And the clear highlights are New Zealand, Finland, Germany, Taiwan. And interestingly, all of these countries are led by women like Jacinda Ardern, Sana Marin, Angela Merkel, Tsai Ling Wen. And they're bringing through female management characteristics like collaboration, uh, transparency, empathy, and delegation, which have all seemed to be contributing towards creating a a safer base, which has helped these countries lead a, a successful defense against Corona and uh, COVID-19. So given that you are the High Commissioner from New Zealand and you represent one of these fantastic countries which are led by women, please can you share some of your views concerning women in leadership?
1: Yes, well, it does seem that communities right now across the board are really appreciating some of the characteristics that women leaders are known to bring to leadership, such as good communication, such as compassion, such as a focus on family, on healthcare, on welfare. Uh, and, and that is being valued across the board. And of course, women leaders are not the only people who focus on those things. But personally, I really hope that and appreciation for women leaders at the moment, not just political leaders, of course, is it? I also hope this for community leaders, because, of course, these women are playing really important roles in our communities in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. What I'm hoping to see is that more people will see leadership and community activism and political participation as something for them. And that it sees all of these things become more representative, politics including that. And, of course, I'm aware that some of our key women leaders in New Zealand, and I'm thinking here of our former Prime Minister Dame Jenny Shipley, has made in the past about the importance of women in leadership is not just that we get greater gender representation, but that encourages our politics to be more representative full stop. So that's ethnicity, that sexual orientation, background, ways of thinking. And perhaps the COVID-19 pandemic has given us another opportunity to reflect on the need for those different ways of thinking, for different ways of leading, and I guess different ways of following as well to make sure that we are not only leading well, but we're also following well. I personally have always tried not to dump the idea that there is one model of leadership for women. There are many different ways to lead. And women, much as anybody else, need to find the way and the style of leadership that suits them and suits their families and their values and principles. Um, and it was great for me to come to South Africa but of course, its hugely strong history of women in leadership. And I'm learning from that as well. I'm looking forward on Friday, actually, to joining a session with uh, Foreign Minister Naledi Pandor with other women heads as much in here in Pretoria. And that will continue my own journey about how you be a woman in international politics and international affairs.
0: You spoke about political participation and recently I saw figures from UN women which indicated that I think there's only a twenty five percent of political representation is is accounted for by women, which at a quarter is certainly not representative of our population in, in any territory. Building the female leadership is is obviously important for the future of women in any country. But there are very few countries which have female heads of state. What steps do you think need to be taken to perhaps prepare countries to be more ready to accept a female president or or prime minister? And this is in line with the thinking that you introduced us to about different ways of leadership and different ways of following. Because if you don't have a, a follower, you can't lead.
1: Yeah. Well, I was lucky. I was born and raised in a country where having women in political, legal, constitutional role was not dramatically unusual. Right now in New Zealand, we have a female prime minister, we have a female leader of the opposition, we have a woman governor-general as chief justice, among many others. But that was also true while I was growing up. So I am very conscious that I have a model of leadership that many girls and women around the world have not been able to have. And I'm conscious of what a New Zealand politics professor I've forgotten her name at the moment, I'm sorry, but she once said that having women as heads of government, she said, it disrupts what we see as normal. And I think that's probably still the case in New Zealand, even with our history of women playing very um, prominent and and important roles in our political landscape. But we know that from many studies around the world that normalising women's presence in politics generally will help normalise their leadership as well. So it's no longer credible to say there just aren't suitable candidates. There are suitable candidates in every area, in every industry. And getting them into positions of leadership is something that everyone needs to commit to. I'm a little hesitant to suggest the specific steps that other countries should take to push that forward. but I think that there is an increasing acceptance of ideas encouraging equal participation in boards, encouraging equal participation in councils. And once you see people in leadership positions, you're going to get more representative at lower levels. And once you get more representation at lower levels, you're going to see more flow into leadership. It's about working both angles simultaneously, I think.
0: You're building the acceptance by having representation at the top. That, in turn, is developing the pipeline and saying to other women, yes, you can do this, come into our organisation, whether that is a a corporate body, whether that is a, a political body, because there are opportunities that you can get to the top.
1: That's right, exactly. And we see women leaders globally at the moment showing girls all around the world that not only can you get to the top, but you can get to the top with your own leadership style. And, and that's equally as important.
0: I think what you've just said is so powerful that there isn't a particular way of, of doing things. You've got your own unique way. And it's about embracing inclusivity, that there are multiple forms of leadership and multiple ways of enacting it.
1: Hi, this is Lira, South African Afro-Soul singer and songwriter. You're listening to Womanity, Women in Unity, presented by Dr. Amelia Malka on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, a program that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in their struggle for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights and democracy.
0: Today, we're talking to the High Commissioner of New Zealand to South Africa, Sarah Lee, We would love to receive your comments on Twitter at Womanity Talk. In our previous conversation, we spoke about some of the High Commissioner's landmarks. We also discussed some of the work in terms of leadership perspective and trying to normalize the aspect of women in leadership and to encourage more women to to occupy roles across the spectrum. We spoke about mechanisms in terms of how they can ask for their value and one of the key practical solutions the High Commissioner mentioned is asking questions, specifically requesting pay data, speaking to your male counterparts so that you can be compensated according to your value. High Commissioner, the juggle between career and motherhood has always been a controversial issue for women. How do you see this?
1: Well, I think like real-life juggling, I personally don't manage to keep all the bills in the air all of the time. And I am learning to be better at or being kinder to myself about not being able to be all things to all people all of the time. My view is women often lean into everything. I'm going to borrow that famous now phrase of leaning in. So not only to lean into your career, but also lean into your family lean into motherhood, or if you're not a parent, lean into a caregiving role for other family or friends. Lean into the community. There's only so much leaning you can do before you fall So I'm beginning to accept that and be better at balancing my own various responsibilities, but also keeping room for my own hobbies, my own things that bring me joy. And that's very important for me as well that we don't lose our ability to be individuals to reflect ourselves as we strive to lean into other people.
0: Would you say that that is part of your secret source for balance of maintaining your, your individuality and maintaining, let, let's say, pleasures or, or hobbies that are for you to enrich the soul?
1: I should be better at myself. My secret sauce has quite got the right flavour. But what works for one family doesn't work for another family. In my view, the most important thing is for the structures that sit around us, for the structures that our employer sets up or that our communities and society set up. It's important for those structures to be flexible enough that women and families in general can make the choices that are best for them. Some of the things that have worked for me have been having an employer and having managers that have enabled me to work part-time but not just part-time, part-time and really substantive roles. So not giving me smaller tasks to match my fewer work hours, but actually recognising that just because the number of work hours I work every week doesn't mean that I'm not able to progress the really important substantive issues. Of course, I've got an incredibly supportive partner and an extended family that always helps. And I've got a fabulous group of women who work have supported me, they've pushed me, uh, they've picked me up and dusted me off and I've needed it and encouraged me to keep going. That is really important, I think, for everybody in demanding roles and when they're trying to balance parenting and their responsibilities. Just
0: thinking in terms of how women manage to achieve all the things that they do.
1: Well, it's all about being a team, isn't it? And I think when you start working flexibly and acknowledging the value that people who work part-time and in other ways can bring to your team, the whole team is um, is able to rise quicker and to get more done and to get better stuff done and to be healthier with it. So it's never about an individual and the miracles they can do alone. It's all about making sure that the mix suits the team.
0: Thanks for sharing those dynamics, especially on the part-time component, because I think realistically that's what a lot of people today, given our circumstances of COVID-19, are are perhaps grappling with, that they're not in work full-time, but they're still having to deliver the results that they were doing um, in a full-time role, but part-time. Turning towards August in South Africa, it's uh, traditionally celebrated as Women's Month, and it provides a period of being able to reflect on the gains that we've made to date, as well as driving future change. And this year's theme is Generation Equality, Realising Women's Rights for an Equal Future. In your opinion, which areas do you think we need to build on the most to benefit women in the future?
1: Well, like everything at the moment. Uh, we need to look at what the new priorities are and we need to be aware of the immediate future, not the distant one. So New Zealand High Commission here and me personally, we're all quite concerned about the disproportionate impact that the COVID-19 pandemic is going to have on women and girls. It's going to come through in relation to education access and outcomes that's going to come through the economic disadvantage that always is disproportionately borne by women. It's going to impact on access to sexual and reproductive health and all of these issues to be openly part of the recovery conversation. And what we need to do is recognise that while we've achieved a lot in the part of equality for women, women's rights are under increasing sex as many established human rights standards and norms are being challenged across the globe. So we won't stop working with other countries to try and make progress on gender equality and women's rights, but we also have to work collectively to defend those advances we've already made and to shore them up. Also, it's really important for me that our international advocacy also matches our domestic objectives, because we need to improve at home just as much as we need to help improvements happen overseas and internationally as well. So we try and ensure the contribution of women and girls is is valued. We try and make sure they have financial security and can fully participate and thrive in security and that women and girls are free from all forms of, of violence and harassment. And all of those things are crucial to enable women to feel and be equal, whether it's equal in a career sense or equal in a political sense or a community sense.
0: The journey is long and the work never seems to be done. Uh, Looking at at the advances and and gains that have been made, I mean, clearly having this pandemic shows that advantages can regress and we've got to keep on the ball and endeavour to um, rise to those challenges. Hi, Commissioner. The question that I'd like to ask you now is about your personal journey. Some of our guests who've reached tremendous achievements in their respective fields of expertise speak about some of the factors that have contributed to their success, whether that is hard work, uh, their upbringing, or, or perseverance. In your opinion, what would you say have been some of the key drivers that have enabled you to succeed?
1: Well, I think. Education in my family was an expectation. Combination, I guess, of education of an international perspective for my family, my extended family. And, of course, there's an element of my success, of the sheer luck of being able to grow up in a multicultural community with a strong basis on the knowledge and the values of our Indigenous people, the Panathist of Aotearoa New Zealand, and in a country where there were opportunities for women. Even though, of course, we have more progress to make, I'm very conscious that I have luck on my side. The women in my life are strong. I come from a long line of very stubborn and determined women. (laughs) My mother worked so hard, and she was an absolute perfectionist. She definitely taught me that if you're going to do something, you better do it properly. She's also really adventurous and more intrepid than I think many people would expect. And my grandmother and my sister are both similar. And my sister-in-law, likewise, is a legend. So I have been surrounded by people who are determined, they are committed, and they have taught me that my options and my decisions are valid. And that's an incredible thing to have to back you up when you want to go and do a big job.
0: Having lived your life thus far... What would you say, if you could single out, has been the best lesson you've learned in your career to date?
1: That's an interesting question. And of course, there are so many things that I have learned and probably even more that I've forgotten. But I think it's a big one for me is to try and care just the right amount. So of course, your career is something you should be passionate about and you should try and do it well and you should try and use it to do good. And of course, you should care about it. But also, I've learnt that I have to remember that there are moments where I have to try not to care too much. That also, my health, my friends, my family are also things that I care about. And getting that balance right is a constant challenge, of course. I think that
0: that's an ongoing lesson. And lastly, as we close out our conversation today... In honour of Women's Month, could you please share a few words of wisdom or inspiration that you'd like to pass on to girls and women that are listening to us on the continent?
1: Well, I'm not sure I have much wisdom of my own to share, so I'm going to lean back into a very well-known and well-loved Maori cover. We use a lot in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Trade in New Zealand because it means something to us as a community. And I personally have got a lot of strength from it during the past few months. The phrase goes, He waka noa, And it means that we're all in the same waka or boat, canoe. You know. It means we're in this together. And for me, it works for every kind of aspect of my life. It works when I'm thinking about New Zealand and South African cooperation and how we work together. It works, and my New Zealand High Commission team together, keeping my team well and happy over the past couple of months, or as happy as we can be, has been a real priority. And it works when you're trying to support your family and your friends. It's something that I guess I see as an ancient and a precious truth. And if others can use that phrase, then then I hope it does them some good.
0: Hawaka Akanoa.
1: Akinoa, that's right.
0: Thank you for sharing that wonderful message with us that provides a, a motto and an anchoring and acknowledging that whilst we're in this boat, um, it is a journey that we're all taking together. Thank you so much for joining us today.
1: It was lovely to talk to you. Uh, good luck.
0: You have been listening to Womanity, Woman in Unity on Channel Africa, The African Perspective. And we have been talking to High Commissioner of New Zealand to South Africa, Sarah Lee.